thewellnesscouch.com. Streaming wellness into your lives. Download the app today. This is Up for a Chat with your hosts, Cindy O'Meara and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara. And I'm Kim Morrison, and we are in for an absolute treat this week. What an honour to have the gorgeous Anthony Chafee with us. Thank you so much for joining us on Up For A Chat. Perhaps before we get right into this and all the incredible work that you're doing, is there any chance that you could take us on a little journey as to where you began this love of health and wellness, rugby, and all the other incredible things that you do? Uh, Yes, of course. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you. It's very nice to meet you both. I, well, I'm an American medical doctor and I've played a lot of sports since I was young and I've always been very interested in sports. I competed in wrestling and MMA and then later rugby. And so, of course, I wanted my body to work as well as it possibly could because I always wanted to compete at a high level. And that's obviously very important to get your nutrition on point. So that was something that I was very interested in from an early age. And when I was in university, I was always interested in going to medical school anyway. And so studying biology uh, was a natural, um, it was a natural extension into studying human nutrition as well. So I started studying that, learning all the traditional guidelines and recommendations and trying to live by those and, you know, having, having good results insofar as my performance as an athlete. But then Later on, inadvertently, when I was taking botany and biology and then cancer biology, I was learning about different plant toxins and defense chemicals. And this is the way that plants defend themselves in nature. Even plant-based advocates such as Dr. Gundry, who wrote the book, A Plant-Based Paradox, who says, okay, well, you you, you should eat plants. However, you should understand they don't want you to eat them and they will defend themselves and they have these toxins. And so I was learning about that. And when I was in my cancer biology class, I had a professor that really hammered the point home and showed us an abundance of information about how toxic plants were. And because this was cancer biology, looked at the number of carcinogens and the carcinogenic nature of many of these, which is actually recognized by the WHO on their website. Um, So we went through all the different sorts of plants that we would eat fruits and vegetables that had dozens, if not over a hundred known carcinogens in them and looked at the abundance of them and the, the likelihood of them causing cancer in lab animals and, and preclinical trials. And we were very blown away by this. We were very taken aback looking at how Brussels sprouts at that time, this was 20 something years ago, how Brussels sprouts had already, they'd already identified 136 known human carcinogens at that time and over a hundred in mushrooms and dozens or more in, in every other produce item that we would eat, spinach, kale and broccoli, lettuce, spinach, you know, everything. And we were very taken aback by that. We all thought that he must be joking. We were very shocked. And I remember thinking in my head, I was like, that, you know, is this, is this real? I mean, uh, vegetables are still good for you though. Right. And he just looked at us and he said, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. 
I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. And so in my head, I just said, okay, that's, that's it. I'm not going to eat plants anymore. And I just stopped and I started default. I defaulted into just eating meat and eggs because I didn't know what else I was supposed to eat. I was just walking around the grocery store saying like everything's plants, there's plants and everything. And so I defaulted into eggs and meat, not realizing at the time that this was an ancestrally appropriate diet. This is what we would have evolved on. This is what, and, and what you evolved on is what you are biologically optimized for. That's how biology works. That's how adaptation works. If you, if you and your species have been eating and previous species before that have been eating a particular thing for two to 3 million years, which we have done so with meat, then you will become very adapted to that. And that will become very, that very optimal nutrition source for you. That is just a law of biology. And so recognizing that is a very good clue. It's really the most important clue into what we should be eating as humans and, and really the basis for human nutrition. And doing this and throwing away all the different uh, recommendations that I had learned studying nutrition and just growing up in the age of Dr. Pritikin and the Pritikin diet of just never eat fat ever. Um, I, I immediately had massive health benefits. My athletic performance went to a whole new level. My fitness level went through the roof. I felt amazing. I didn't have mental fog. I slept amazingly well. I, my scholastic endeavors were much more easy and I was working out and training and playing rugby six to eight hours a day, every day. And I just couldn't get enough of it. I was playing three or four games a weekend and just couldn't get enough of it. And I was just getting better and better and better and better and better. And then five years later, I'm playing at a professional level in England uh, for rugby and I'm feeling great. But then a few months into it, I'm not feeling as great. And I, I'm thinking to myself, why don't I feel as just superhuman amazing as I normally do? Am I not pushing myself? Am I not working out as hard? Am I 25, 25 now? So am I just over the hill? Am I dying now? And I, I didn't know exactly what it was. But looking back, that's when I started slipping off the diet. I started letting things creep back in because I wasn't thinking of this as like, this is an ancestrally appropriate, biologically appropriate, optimal diet. I was just avoiding plants. And there were some of the meats some chicken and things like that were crumb. They had just little crumbs on it. And it was just convenient for me to get these. And so I convinced myself that, well, you know, dose makes the poison. So a little bit, that probably can't hurt me. And really just once or twice a week, I was having this sort of crumbed chicken. And that was enough to, to really dull the edge on my athletic performance and how I felt, uh, which was pretty surprising. But the biggest thing that that did is it, is it opened the door to letting other things slip in and instead of saying, no, I'm never eating plants at all whatsoever, I started, you know, letting some things slip in and I eventually slipped back into a more whole food omnivorous diet, including meat and fruits and vegetables and carbs and things like that. And my, you know, I still felt healthy, but I would put on weight, I would lose muscle mass if I wasn't working out extensively. Whereas before I didn't even have to work out, I would maintain my musculature and my and a lean body mass. And so I figured that was just, that was just aging and you know, I'm getting closer to 30. Now I'm in my thirties. And if I worked really hard, then I could get into very good shape again. And then when I was 38, I came across information that just showed that no humans actually are carnivores 
by nature. That's just the kind of animal that we are. And just like all animals in nature, uh, we have an evolved species-specific diet that is biologically appropriate for us. And I looked back to that period in my life where I've never felt better in my entire life. And I realized that's why, that's why I felt so good was because I was actually eating a biologically appropriate diet. And I immediately got rid of the vegetables. I was really just eating just whole, whole vegetables, no carbs, no bread, no grains and lean meat. And that was it. And I wasn't feeling great. I figured it was just a product of age and, and a sedentary lifestyle or fairly sedentary. And I was completely wrong. As soon as I dropped just the, the vegetables and the whole food produce and started eating a lot more fatty meat, particularly red meat like beef, my health just dramatically changed. And in a matter of two weeks, I felt like I just a different breed of human. And I looked back at my entire life and realized that I just felt awful my entire life without realizing it. And at 38, I felt better than I ever had in my entire life, except for those five years in my early 20s today, when I'd never been able to figure out what it was, what was so special about those years that I felt so good. Now I knew. And so I started digging into the research, digging into the literature. I was uh, taking some time off uh, from practice at the time uh, in order to help with a family health crisis. And so I had a bit of time on my hands. I'd, I'd been doing humanitarian work and I'd just been back from that, from Bangladesh. And I just started digging into the research. I was spending eight or nine hours a day, sometimes more, just reading journal articles and studies and just trying to figure out what we knew and what we could prove. And I found quite a lot of robust information about how beneficial it is to, to change the way we eat and how uh, a carnivorous diet and an ancestrally appropriate diet and eliminating out these different sorts of things that have been introduced into our diet much more recently uh, is very beneficial to health. And I found a lot of evidence for that, not necessarily direct evidence as experiment as in experimental uh, interventional trials with the carnivore diet, because it, it wasn't even known to be a thing. It wasn't called by that at the time, but there was a lot of information that you could, that you could use to uh, understand the situation. And not wanting to be a, a victim of confirmation bias or being in an echo chamber, I decided to go to a lot of the vegan proponents that were saying, no, this is the healthiest way to eat. I mean, previously it was, well, this is an ethical issue. It's not really nice to eat animals. And they, you know, it's not nice. It's not nice to kill things. But, you know, it, it, it is a reality that uh, that we live in. And so that was always the argument, but now they're arguing that no, 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 it's actually not only is it you know ethically superior, it's nutritionally superior, and that's actually what we evolved on. We're actually herbivores, which made no sense because like you can't you cannot get even basic essential nutrients from a vegan diet. So you cannot argue that that's our optimal diet, or certainly not one that we evolved on. And but it's like okay, well maybe you know I don't want to be missing something you know, what are these guys saying that I'm not, that I'm not seeing? And so I went through their arguments and their blogs and, you know, their writings and talks and lectures and things like that. And I, I found that they were quite flawed inherently. And a lot of things they were basing it on were, or had been shown to be uh, untrue, such as the, the cholesterol uh, theory of heart disease. And uh, so many of these things were based on those flawed models 
And so it looked like their entire premise was was built on a stack of cards that had, had since been blown over and they just haven't sort of given up the ghost yet. So I I felt very confident that this was an appropriate diet for people. And I started incorporating that into my practice and suggesting this to my patients and to my friends and to my family. And I've seen nothing but honestly miraculous results. I mean, results that that you would heretofore think of as miraculous because we don't think that they can possibly happen. We don't think that you can reverse type 2 diabetes as a progressive illness that only gets worse or atherosclerosis or uh, Crohn's disease or rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. And yet I am seeing people in my practice every single day improve these and improve, improve them subjectively in their own symptoms, but also objectively. People with Crohn's disease, not only do they improve their symptoms, it's, it's fairly easy to tell if you're improving on Crohn's because you stop having 30 bouts of bloody diarrhea every day. So that's pretty, it's pretty easy to tell if you're, if you're improving that or not. And so objectively they're improving because their symptoms are getting better, but also uh, when they get a biopsy of their intestine, three months, four months, five months down the road, they find no, no sign of inflammation. And so that's an objective marker of improvement or people with rheumatoid arthritis, their flare-ups go away or multiple sclerosis. I've seen multiple people not only improve symptomatically to the point that they don't have neurological dysfunction anymore, they're coming out of wheelchairs, they're walking again, they're being active, but also on MRI, their lesions are resolving. And so, and that's without medication. That's only with their dietary interventions. So there's definitely something here and there's a lot to be gained, I think, by going to that ancestral approach. And that's why I promote that. I I love what you say. And I first heard you, Anthony, when you were um, at Low Carb Down Under last year. And um, being a nutritionist, um, studying nutrition to become a dietitian, but never went on to do dietetics, I'm I'm listening to you, but I'm not necessarily um, computing everything. But I've been listening to your um, How to Carnivore podcast. Um, I heard you at Regenerate Aubrey, and I am seeing the results of uh, people that are doing this. I remember, uh, like, so you had at university a biology teacher on you know on cancer that. Um, opened your eyes. When I was at university and I went to see you in Boulder, I had a university professor called Van Gerven and he was anthropology. And we did cultural anthropology and anthropology. And it was because of him that I decided to become a nutritionist. But what I saw was cultures that had varying diets as opposed to as uh, humans having one appropriate diet. And this is what I want to ask you. So if you live in an extreme environment, definitely carnivore would have been the way, and if not herding, so we can look at the Hudsons, the um, Himbas in Namibia, the Inuits, the Katavas, not the Katavas, the um, Kagiras in Premier, and we look at those and they're all meat and dairy eaters, so basically carnivore because they see carnivores, some people eat the dairy. 
But then when you come to a country like Papua New Guinea, where the highlanders, such as the Danny and the Lanny, they eat 90% plant because they don't have any wild animals. They have rodents and they have um, some insects. And if you look at the Catavas, which is an island off Papua New Guinea, they consume fish, coconut, and lots and lots of carbohydrates. Can you address that for me? Is, is it because, like my thoughts are this, is it is it because our microbiome is being so eroded, which the plants feed, I, I assume, I'm, I want you to, you know, go through me with it, go through this with me. Is it because our microbiome is so eroded that our human body can only handle uh, carnivore now because more and more people are going carnivore and feeling amazing, are becoming allergic to plants, can't tolerate plants. Is it because of that maybe um, that we are no longer able to eat a variety of groups? What what do you think is happening here? Well, I think that could that could certainly play a role. Uh, you know, it, it's the microbiome is very very interesting. It's something that will will have a lot of many many years and decades of of interesting research before, you know to to discover and there, there's already a lot of very interesting preliminary work on it uh, so that certainly could be a factor one of the things that i think are, is important to think about is that you know what what primitive cultures are eating now is not necessarily indicative of what primitive cultures were eating prior to the agricultural revolution and certainly prior to the extinction episode that happened sort of towards the end of the last ice age. So before that, we had an abundance of megafauna and quite a lot of cultures were, were just eating that that megafauna. And then when those died out, then you you have to sort of switch over to to other things. And so the wonderful thing about human about life in general is that it, it's adaptable and humans in particular, we do have a capacity to eat plants. And uh, that's because we have an herbivorous past. We came from herbivores around six to eight million years ago or so. And our our primate ancestors split off from the ancestors of the the bonobo and the chimp um, because they started eating meat. They started eating more and more meat and and evolved away in that direction. And around two and a half, three million years ago, we really started eating primarily meat. And with Homo habilis and the advent of the uh, the beginnings of the ice age two to two and a half million years ago turned into apex predators. And the definition of an apex predator is that they are carnivores. They eat animals. They eat all the, all the animals below. I mean, they're 70% of animals are carnivores, but they're somewhere in that chain. So they're getting, there are carnivores that eat carnivores, that eat carnivores, that eat carnivores, that eat plants and algae. And so we were at the top of that. So because we've had a, you know, an herbivorous past. We haven't been carnivores as long as, say, wolves or felines. We have more of a capacity to eat plants than they do. And that certainly is going to confer a survival advantage in times of stress and 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 need. And so in places like Papua New Guinea or even in Australia, where if you look at the the explorers coming in the 1600s and the missionaries that that lived with the aboriginals they found that they were really just if they had meat they would just eat meat 
but they knew which plants that they could use, certainly medicinally, but also nutritionally if they weren't able to get their, their food, their meat. And so we have that ability to eat plants, but I don't necessarily think that that's the best thing that we could eat. Um, but you know, it, it's, it is interesting with Papua New Guinea because I have, I have seen that culture. I think they have something, what is it like 76 different kinds of yams and sweet potatoes and things like that. So they, they, yeah, you know, yeah quite a, quite a variety of these things. Mm. And so it, you know, and that is one thing, you know, when you're looking at plant toxins, they can build up, we have a certain capacity for detoxifying these things and working them out. If you keep eating the same one over and over and over again, it can build up and, and become more of a problem. Whereas if you're eating a wide variety of them, then then that sort of keeps the, the overall levels a bit low on each individual toxin. So that may be a reason why they aren't um, too affected by that if they have all these different varieties of sweet potato that they're eating. But certainly one, one theory is that they've, reduced significantly the amount of seed oils and omega-6s. That's the theory of, of, of a doctor named uh, Chris Kenobi, who wrote a book called The Ancestral Diet Revolution. And he makes a big argument for omega-6s and seed oils being a major, major driver of obesity and chronic disease and illness. And he mentions uh, Papua New Guinea um, and all these others, other populations and what he shows as a as a, a constant between them is that their intake of omega-6 is uh one to two percent always one to two percent or lower and he thinks that that's a major a major factor there a lot of people are having a lot of saturated fat but some are meat-based like the maasai or the inuit but then they could be plant-based and get a lot of coconut oil um, you know, like some of the Pacific Islanders and have the majority of their calories come from saturated fat in coconut oil. And the Papua New Guineans who are sort of on the, on the other side of the spectrum, where they're not even getting all that much fat, they're getting mostly carbs, but a constant between them all is that they're very low omega-6. So I don't know exactly the answer to that, but that, that is one plausible explanation as far as the microbiome is concerned, the Inuit, when eating their natural meat-only diet, they found that their microbiome is extraordinarily healthy. And so, you know, that's, you know, your microbiome is fed by what you eat as well. And so, you know, presumably what they're eating of just meat seems to support a healthy microbiome. But certainly the different things that we're exposing ourselves to, obviously antibiotics, but also strange chemicals that we're putting in as preservatives or fertilizers or pesticides or what have you can absolutely derange our microbiome. One thing as well is during the ice ages, there really weren't options besides meat. It was just, it was just plants plant or sorry, just meat because mm. you know, plants weren't able to survive. And especially when you're in more towards the poles, during an ice age, there really isn't any plant life to eat. And that was something that I, I spoke with a professor of archaeology and paleoanthropology, Dr. Um, Bill Schindler, who's a professor now retired from the uh, University of Maryland. And, and he was saying that if you look at the fossil record, some people argue, well, when the ice sheets were coming down, 
humans just raced towards the equator and just stayed there where all the, you know, the fruit and vegetables were. If you're making that argument that we were, we were eating plants the whole time. But he said that, no, that's actually not the case that when the ice, ice shelves were coming down, that our ancestors were actually going up and attacking up into the ice. And so that's quite interesting, but that's, that's where the megafauna is. And certainly you don't have an abundance of plants at that point. So yeah, it's, it's, I think that a major factor in in the health of these different indigenous populations, a lot of it has to do with your, we're just not eating things that simply didn't exist even 50 years ago. A lot of the things, a lot of the ingredients in the foods that we're eating now simply didn't even exist 50 years ago. And you can, we can, we can talk about the evidence as, as to why or if humans evolved on meat or mixture. But what you can't really argue is that we evolved to eat something that didn't even exist 50 years ago, let alone 50,000 years ago or 500,000 years ago. So I think getting rid of those seems to be a major, major factor in uh, benefiting people's health. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I um, I remember back in the 80s when I was practicing as a nutritionist in Melbourne, uh, I would just have people come in and I was a real food nutritionist. I wasn't doing dietetics with margarine and low fat and breakfast cereals and things like that. It was all about getting rid of the the amount of wheat people are eating, the amount of low fat that they were drink, eating and drinking and all of that. And when I had people come in, all I would do was change them from a ultra-processed food diet, as it was in the 80s, to a real food diet, and they would get better. But as the decades have gone past, they're not getting better on a real food diet. They're having all of these, these issues happening. And I, th- I think you just piqued my interests when I listened to you. I, I tried, it was so funny because I'm I'm listening to you going, but hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. In my mind, I didn't say it out loud, but mm. in my mind. And but the more I listen to you, the more I listen to your podcast, and the more I see of people doing this. And I think Maggie turned me, I gotta tell you, uh, um Anthony, I think looking at that woman who had been carnival for 65 years, and I have not listened to your interview with her yet. And that's one in one of my things that I want to do. What I do want to ask you is why did she choose to do that 65 years ago? Did she have Crohn's disease or, and by the way, for the listeners, Maggie is a rancher in Canada who's 82 years of age and looks, I would say, 40s or 50s in, in the picture. That's what she looks like to me, Anthony. I don't know if she acts like that, but that's what she looks oh. like. So she, she acts younger than that. I mean, she she moves like a like a, a fit 30-year-old. Wow. She was climbing up and down tractors and farm equipment. They, they're building a sailboat so they can, they can sail around. Uh, the world because her husband Mac is uh, very you know very much loves sailing, and uh, so we went out one day on the lake and she's climbing up the mast and grabbing things, pulling things down. It, it was like I mean she was moving probably quicker than I could up the mm-hmm. mast, and she's 82. And then there was a bull that got out of a pen and got through some pastures and was facing off with another bull through the 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 fence and wanted to get into to his cows and they were gonna fight if they were able to get into the same pasture. Maggie literally just hopped over the fence quick as you like and went over this mat. This is the largest bull I've ever seen in my entire life. His name was Growler. He's huge. And, you know, he'd kick up, you know, some turf and it was throwing off these, these plumes of dirt 
about 30 feet behind him. It was just this massive, powerful animal. She just literally hopped over this five foot fence without any problem and went over and was like, grab him, come on, let's go, you know, and just like, just dealing with this massive bully just could have pounded her into dust. And she has just no, no problem at all uh, handling this massive animal at 82. And, 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 and so much more. I mean, she's up every morning out with the cows at, at 5 a.m. She's working all day uh, until after dark and, uh, and just tons and tons and tons of energy. And all she eats is meat and eggs and butter and, and things like that. So she started, uh, well, she, she really started more than 65 years ago. I say 65 years in on the, on the podcast title, because that's, that's as long as it's, definitely been just meat because how it started was not for any health reasons or because you know she was trying to reverse anything or because anyone told her that it was more healthy she just hated vegetables so she was that classic as she was just like me as a kid and she hated vegetables she fought to not eat them she only wanted to eat the meat and her parents were just nicer than mine and so they didn't force her like, like mine did and so her her parents just said, look, you know, she's she's healthy, she's thin, you know, she wants to just eat meat. We'll just we'll just you know let her do it. And so really, she's been eating carnivore pretty much her entire life, except when forced to as a child, which wasn't all that often. And then when she moved out of the house, she went to veterinary school originally in the 1950s at uh, University of British Columbia in Canada. And she decided that and, and at, at that point, she was just like, well, I'm not eating vegetables ever again. If, I, if it's up to me, I'm only eating meat. And, uh, and then she decided that she didn't want to be a vet and take care of other people's animals. She wanted her own animals. And so she went off and uh, dropped out of school and went and started working on a ranch hundreds of miles away from the nearest town. And back then, if you're that far away from everything, you the only thing you eat is what you bring with you or you grow or you raise and seeing as that she had no interest in eating vegetables anyway she she was you know she said she'd be damned if she was going to work to grow vegetables to eat them she hated them she never wanted to eat them so it was purely instinctual she just didn't like them they didn't taste good and probably didn't make her feel good and so she decided that she would just eat meat and she had six kids uh, just eating meat and you know, raise them like that. But she didn't impress upon them. This is the only thing that's healthy to eat. She was just like, you guys can do what you want. I'm not eating anything else. There's only going to be meat in my house. You want to have something else, you bring it yourself. And and she's just done that her whole life. And then she found my podcast, another podcast, and, and it just sort of made sense. Like, huh, I guess there was something to that. Just her natural instincts were were more right than she knew. But she is extraordinarily healthy. She's sharp as a tack. And she, again, has, has so much energy. She doesn't have arthritis. She doesn't take medications. She doesn't ever see the doctor. She has a commercial driver's license, so she can drive a big rig to, to pull bales of hay and things like that for her cows. She was, she was baling hay last year. She was saying, she said, you know, when you start baling hay, you just keep going until it's done. You don't stop and come back the next day. You just keep going. And she said in her 80s, at one point, the longest she went was 36 hours straight that she was just bailing in her 80s. And some people have, have said, oh, well, how do you know? There's no way that she's 82. I've seen her passport. I've seen her driver's license. I've seen her birth certificate. 
She is 100% 82. She was born in 1941. And obviously I can't post that online or anything like that because I can't give out her, her personal details and information like that. But she is absolutely born in 1941. And she, she never goes to the doctor except to renew her commercial driver's license. She has to get a physical eyesight check and all that sort of stuff to be legal to drive commercial vehicles. And, and that's it. She's, she's literally, as she says it, she's middle-aged. And I agree with her because genetically we are designed to live 120 years on average based on the length of our telomeres. I was taught that in genetics, you know, 20 years ago, that that's how long people are supposed to live on average. Meaning that if you just stay out of your own way and don't mess up, you should make it to 120 years without doing anything special. And so the question becomes, why are people dying in their 60s and 70s? Why are they decaying and falling apart in their 70s and 80s? And you, if you, someone is lucky enough to get into their 90s, they are frail and ill and generally falling apart or in a nursing home uh, with, with adult, uh, adult brains. And that is not what it's supposed to be. You know, people say like, well, my grandmother, you know, ate a lot of plants and she died at 90. Well, I'm, I'm happy for her, but she died 30 years early, unfortunately. And it's, it's something that, that I think we should be cognizant of because we have decades more healthy life for ourselves, for our parents, for our grandparents. And, and, and they deserve that. And we deserve that. We don't, we don't deserve to die young. And it's not that you just live super healthy and then just drop dead 30, 40 years early. You're decaying and breaking down for decades leading up to that. And so you die young, but also your life is harder and more painful and more sickened. And I think that that is, it's not necessary, first of all. And I think it's, it's honestly, uh, just a crime against humanity that, that so many millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people have had to suffer for decades and then die decades early. I think that that is, that is a true tragedy and, and something that I hope I can reverse at least for, for the people that will listen. Anthony, as I'm listening to you, picturing you in the medical world, which seems to it seems to be a natural artifact of aging that we do get debilitated and crippled and die this death on many medications and mm-hmm. it just seems to be an acceptable part of growing older to the majority and I know it's common not normal but I also had my smart DNA testing done not long ago just to see uh, you know what was switched on and off and all of these sorts of things and it came back that the best diet for me was a mediterranean diet which involved a lot of, you know, your omega-3s, beautiful fats and oils and things like that, but also fresh fish, but lots of vegetables. Is this a one diet, the carnivore diet you think is right for everybody, given that we are all of the same species? Or do you think there's exceptions to the rule, apart from from an anthropological and, and a, I guess, an ancient point of view? Is it something that we can all do, or do you think it is more specific? Because ultimately, if we turn around and told people you have to give up vegetables or this is the best way to do if, if for the sake of their health and well-being, we also know that there's a lot of people that wouldn't be willing to give that up even if they were on death's door. Yeah, true. Um, well, you know, everything 
obviously is is what people are willing to do and and what they're happy to do. For me, my my main focus for myself is I, I don't want to put things in my body that are that are harmful to me. And plants objectively have things that are harmful for us. Meat does not. Meat is what we're designed to eat. Meat is the only thing that you can gain all of the essential nutrients in the balance that you need them in one go. So just fatty steak, that's it. You can you can live your entire life on that. For most people, some people maybe need a bit of organs or some liver or something like that because even the meat that we're eating now, they're being fed things that they didn't evolve on necessarily. So if you're not getting grass-fed and finished beef, you know, it's not going to be as nutrient dense as grass-fed and finished beef, but it's it's still very very good. Um as far as well, I you know I I I do speculate as to the accuracy and veracity of these genetic testing that says well you should be eating these other diets because realistically, regardless of your genetic variations, we are one species and we're Homo sapiens sapiens, and I've never been able to find or when I ask this of other people, other biologists and professors if they can think of any example of any species where two members of the same species have a different optimal diet. Generally, dolphins eat what dolphins eat, lions eat what lions eat all over the world. And so that to me is a bit, is a bit curious. Now, there's a difference between optimal and suboptimal diets. There are certainly people that have genetic adaptations to more suboptimal food. So like we've been evolving to eat meat and we've been adapting to eat meat for millions of years, we've, some populations have been introduced to agriculture more recently and about maybe 10,000 years ago, some much more recently, but the ones that have been been introduced to agriculture about 10,000 years ago have more genetic adaptations and protections against suboptimal plant food. And so they are able to survive and, and able to temper the deleterious effects of a, a suboptimal diet. Then you compare that with people that have not had agriculture as long, like the Native Americans in North America or the Native Australians. They are, when eating a Western diet, because normally they're just eating meat, they are four times as likely to get obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and all the other chronic diseases that used to be called the diseases of the West. And so when European explorers would go to these different populations, they found that, wow, these people just don't get the same diseases we do. So they were the diseases of the West. Well, when they started eating the food of the West, they started getting the diseases of the West because they did not have the adaptations that Europeans did to, to deal with these things. Now, Europeans still get these same problems with this same food, they just get it to a low, lesser extent than Native Americans and Native Australians. And obviously there are other, other populations that have had agriculture uh, as long or longer than, than European populations have. But that's, that's how I think about that. Also, the Mediterranean diet is a funny one because no one, there's no one Mediterranean diet. And, and um, certainly omega-3s are very important. I, I think that's important for everybody, regardless of your genetics. And the, the Mediterranean diet was first popularized by Ansel Keys, who we know now was in the pay of 
the sugar companies um, called the Sugar Research Foundation. They were they were paying him off and other professors around America and elsewhere to drum up the idea that cholesterol caused heart disease because there was research coming out and people arguing that sugar was strongly associated, the rise in sugar consumption was strongly associated with the rise of heart disease, which didn't really exist before the 20th century. The first documented death from myocardial infarction in America proven on autopsy was in, I think, 1907, 1910, something like that in America. And they didn't believe, no one believed that this was an actual cause of death. They thought they had, they had messed it up because they never, no one had ever heard of this as a cause of death before. They'd seen other maladies of the heart, but never a myocardial infarction, which obviously wasn't even called that, that back then. About 10 years later, they started believing, but they didn't believe them for about 10 years because there, there just weren't any, but now more were showing up and more were showing up. And they're like, okay, yeah, there's, there's something going on here. What, what the hell is happening? Why are people dying of this new illness? 10 years after that, it's the number one killer in America. Well, you can't say that that's meat because we're already meat, eating meat before that. And if you look at the consumption data in America, we actually peaked the amount of meat that we we're eating in the 1800s and it was slowly sort of coming down towards the end of the 1800s and then early 1900s, exactly when heart disease really took off was when we were eating in America the least amount of meat that we had been eating in 200 years. And then it you know, started coming up again, uh, the amount of meat that we were eating, but it's not even associated with that. And it's a, it's a very much a new disease. And, and what uh, some people have, have uh, said before and pointed out is that we've been eating meat and fat forever. That's been the norm. So how can a, an ancient diet cause a new disease, which, which heart disease was? And so Ansel Keys was compromised. We know this. We know that he was being paid off by the sugar companies. So it's hard to take anything that he says um, without at least a grain of salt. Um, when he was exploring the Mediterranean and, and discovered the so-called Mediterranean diet, he just happened to go during Lent which whether that was on purpose or on accident, I don't know, but he went during Lent when they, everyone eschewed meat. And that was like for, for religious reason, but that's not necessarily what, that's not necessarily indicative of what they do year round. And in fact, you know, speaking of Dr. Bill Schindler, you know, him being interested in this sort of thing, he went over to Sardinia, which was the, and went to the epicenter of the first blue zone ever discovered in Sardinia or in the world. And this was in Sardinia, and this is something that in like the blue zone papers, I won't call it a study because it wasn't, but they said that they uh, are mostly plant-based and only eat meat, you know, once a week or so. And he went there and he said, not all, and I'll be releasing this, this video soon. He said that not only are they not plant-based, they are nearly carnivorous. They're not fully carnivorous. They do eat some plants like tomatoes um, and olives and things like that, but mostly what they eat is meat. And so every single meat and dairy, a lot of cheese. And so, and they, everyone had pigs, everyone had sheep, everyone had goats, everyone had animals and everywhere they went, it was meat was on the menu. Every time they were just eating meat, 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 meat. And then after a few days there, they came to him, his, his host, and he said, Oh, you know, tomorrow we're going to be, we're going to be eating meat. And he just looked confused. He said, but we've been eating meat every day. And they're like, no, no, no. What we mean by that is when we put a whole 
sheep on a spit and roast the whole animal and the whole community comes together and we all eat it together. So that's what they mean by eating meat once a week. And so that's been misrepresented as that they don't eat any animal products for the rest of the week, but it's a, it's a communication error. So it's hard to know what the actual Mediterranean diet is. The, what, what does seem to be is actually very meat based and whole animal based. So you're getting, you're getting a lot of you know, regeneratively raised animals. They're not in a feedlot or anything like that. They're just out on the land eating what they're supposed to eat, helping the land and helping helping themselves. And, um, and that's very, very healthy as it turns out. Um, you know, also, you know, you can have a genetic predisposition to certain things, but without the environmental trigger, you're not going to get the disease. So a, a classic example of this would be the Inuit again. And, you know, during the, the 20th century, they had very, very low levels of heart disease and cancer and other chronic diseases but the later in the later decades the later and later that you got those rates started going up and up and up as a population and that's because more and more of the population were being you know uh you know started taking on a western diet and western habits and maybe living in cities as well and but even then, in the night in the 1990s, there was a study in Canada that looked at the Canadian Inuit and they found, well, they, they already knew that the Canadian Inuit had very low rates of heart disease, even though they had supposedly very high risk factors, such as eating a lot of fatty meat, a lot of uh, saturated fat, you know, blubber. They're just eating seal and whale blubber. And uh, and so they thought that was a major risk factor. But also, you know, definitely a real risk factor is they, they're heavy smokers. And so on, on average, the Inuit starts smoking at a very young age. At, at this point, I don't know what it was in the 90s, but now it's uh, said to be they start smoking on average at eight years old. So they start smoking very, very young. And in the 90s, with all these risk factors, they still, even as a population, not even just eating meat, even the ones that were incorporated into western society and and eating western foods their rates of heart disease were still very low and as compared to the rest of canada and so they thought okay well surely this must be genetic then they must have and we'll, we'll do genetic panels we'll find that they uh, must have protections against heart disease and all these sorts of things so they looked at the the classic markers for genetic predisposition for heart disease and they found that the inuit had basically all the bad ones. So they had none of the protective genes and they had all of the, the ones that were like a, a major risk factor for developing heart disease. And yet they had a much lower rates, even with their, their high risk factors, such as smoking and what they thought to be a risk factor of, of uh, saturated fat. So they basically concluded, well, we don't know what to make of this. You know, it could be, there's something else going on here that we don't know about, or the, uh, the genetic markers just really aren't that good of a of a of an indicator on whether or not you're predisposed but what i think it is really what's going on there is that they were eating what they're supposed to eat even though they were smoking which is not great and even though other people were eating things that and drinking things that were probably quite bad for them as a whole there were enough people still eating a lot of meat that this was protected and that this was bringing those numbers down so even though they have the genetic predispositions for heart disease. They don't really get heart disease 
as long as they're eating a biologically appropriate diet. And I think that does apply to everyone. Um, I do think that underlying we are the same species and that that is, um, that is going to be a constant throughout our species. And certainly there are some people that can do better than others eating, you know, more plant-based, but I, I still think that the optimal diet is still going to be the same is that we will, we will all get everything we need in the proportion that we need it from eating fatty animals. And you don't get anything that you don't need or don't want. And I don't know of any genetic population of humans that that is counter to. So I, I don't understand. I don't know of anybody that, that actually there's something in meat that that actually causes direct harm. And I've, I've asked a number of, of vegan doctors. I've had debates with people. I've tried to say like, okay, what can you name anything? Is there anything in meat that causes harm? I mean, the only ones that they talk about is, is like saturated fat, but that's been long disproven. I mean, the journal of the American college of cardiology, one of the top cardiology journals in the world published a major paper in 2020 showing that there was absolutely no correlation even between saturated fat intake and heart disease. They, they went through all the, the best data, the randomized controlled trials, meta-analyses, all the best data. And they found there's no association between saturated fat intake and heart disease. And they said that there shouldn't be any arbitrary upper limit for saturated fat. You eat as much as you want. It has no effect on heart disease. And in fact, they found an inverse relationship between the amount of saturated fat people eat and their stroke rates. So people that ate more saturated fat had lower risk of stroke and people that ate less saturated fat had a higher risk of stroke. So I, yeah, so that, that was really it. They can't really say, well, there's this chemical and this is toxic. Um, they, you know, they try with saturated fat, but that's, that's incorrect. However, you know, we know, I mean, just, just ask any botanist and they can, they can tell you any, any number of thousands of toxic chemicals that exist in plants. In fact, there's a professor of botany at uh, Cambridge, uh, uh, Dr. John Parker, um, I believe if I haven't mistaken his name. And, and he points out that plants are the great chemists of the world and they make nearly 1 million different chemicals, most of which are used as defense. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, and, and this is, this is why we understand that most plants are inedible. We understand the difference between edible and inedible plants, right? You get lost in the woods and you run out of food. You can't just eat any random plants because most of them will make you very, very sick or even kill you. And so that, that is the nature of plants. They make defense chemicals to stop you from eating them. And so there are things in plants that are harmful to us. Some people are more harmed than others, but I don't think that there's really anyone, even the ones who've been exposed to agriculture the longest, that are completely immune to all of the toxins in the plants that we eat. And also we're eating more and more new plants. We're eating a wider and wider variety of plants and just thinking that, well, if it's a plant, it must be good for you. And that is definitely the opposite of true. Um, so I think that that you can do very well and by eliminating out you know, processed foods and seed oils and sugars and alcohol um, and trying to reduce and limit the amount of plants or at least get a variety of them so you're not building up with one toxin or another and and eating a lot of meat and fatty meat. I think you can do a lot better than the average person, but I think you do best 
by just eating fatty meat with a lot of omega-3s. Mm. What an incredible answer, Anthony. And I, I wrote down a million things while you were mm. you know, talking about it, just um, trying to, um, first of all, understand exactly what you were, you were saying, but also uh, agreeing with what you were saying. So in Australia, the Australian Aboriginal people ate a food called nadu, which is a seed from a grass, and it's found on the Cooper River, which is in the centre of Australia. And they knew if that wasn't prepared properly that it would kill them. <laughs> they they actually knew that. And I don't know, you know, you're not an Australian, so you may not know our Australian history, but there were two explorers called Burke and Wills who explored from basically the bottom of South Australia to the top of the Northern Territory. Uh, and they saw the Australian Aboriginal people taking the Nadu and, um, or, you know, gathering it. And they thought, well, this must be the plant that we can eat. Like we, they could fish, they had kangaroo towards the end of their expedition, they'd run out of food um, and they felt that they needed plant because of the scurvy thing that was happening around the world. Mm -hmm. And they um, they basically ate Nadu raw and that's what they found killed Birkin Wills was yeah. it created a bee deficiency and so they died. Um, as a result of a lack of bees, whereas the Australian Aboriginal people, obviously through culture and tradition, figured out that the soaking, the crushing, the cooking was all important to render that plant um, away without the the chemical that was going to you know render them without a, um, enough bee in order for them to survive. So, you know, I think we've lost our cultures and traditions. Uh, we don't know how to prepare food properly. We don't know what foods are poisonous. We go to the supermarket. We see foods in the supermarket that that are there from another country, from another um, part of latitude, longitude. And I think uh, in the end our bodies become confused by all of it. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was the genetics, you know, the um, we've, I've always been told, you know, the gene um, is the loaded gun, but the environment is the trigger. Mm. And I've seen in the last 43 years that I've been in healthcare, the darlings of um, testing, the darlings of food, the darlings of supplements, the darlings even of drugs. And I just find we seem to, and I don't know, and I'm going to ask you a question around this, but I feel like there's there's always something that we're chasing in the way of testing and supplements and foods and things like that. Why do you think that this agenda at the moment, which is all plant-based, lab-grown meats, plant-based meats, plant-based milks, um, plant-based spreads such as margarine, which has been around for a long time, but why do you think this agenda is happening? What why are people so afraid of, you know, cattle ranching or like I have a farm and I have cattle and I have chickens and I raise them holistically as I raise my family holistically. You know, we, we I, I do much the same thing. Why do you think there's this agenda that they think that animals are bad for the planet and we should be eating plants? Are we going to kill the human race the rate it's going? Yeah, well, it is it is very interesting, and it does seem to be a concerted international effort. Yes, uh, which is a, which is a bit strange because if you if you look at at the emissions of cows and they say, oh my gosh, they're they're so horrible, they're a terrible thing. 
They have the exact same emissions as if you just left the land wild and let wild animals be there. So it's actually net zero. And so we're, we're you know, it, you might as well just go through and look at what the emissions of, uh, you know, the bison and moose are in Yellowstone. I'm like, oh, my God, look at those emissions. Let's kill them all. Right. Um, obviously, that's that's uh, that would be a bit insane. Animals are very not only very good for the environment, they are the environment. They are part of the environment. Mm -hmm. And so without them, the environment suffers. The plants suffer. They don't eat down the dead grasses or the, the, you know, the older grasses that need to make way for the new grasses come up with, if, if grasses get to a certain length, they stop sort of growing. They just sort of sit there and they need to be eaten down to a certain point. And then they actually grow four times as fast. And so that, that triggers the grasses, you know, to grow more and more and more. And this regenerates the land. It's, it provides more food for more animals. And, and when, you know, when there were over a hundred million Buffalo, or bison, I should say, in North America, as well as hundreds of millions of other large animals uh, across the, the Great Plains in America, they uh, they they said in different different uh, explorer reports that the grass was so tall you could tie it in a knot over their horse's head. So it was over nine feet tall. So it was like you know going through like the tall grass in India, you know, on the back of a of an elephant or something like that. That was that was the middle of America. And that was because there were so many animals. That was because that's how these great grasslands evolved is the, is the large ruminant grazing animals actually help the land grow and become more fertile. And that promotes more growth of the plants, which promotes more, uh, well, this is more available nutrition for the animals. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. The more animals there are, the more plants there are, and they can support more animals, which generate more plants, which support more animals, and just goes on like that. And so you start taking out the animals out of that equation, the plants die off too. And that, that was actually proven by uh, Dr. Alan Savory down in Zimbabwe when they decided that the elephants, because that was the idea, animals destroy the land. And they said, oh, elephants look like they're, you know, we have too many elephants. And that's turning, you know, Zimbabwe into a desert because they're destroying and ripping up all these trees. And so we need to kill these elephants. So the Zimbabwe government killed 30,000 elephants, I think, in the 1970s. And what do you know? The, the desert, desertification sped up. It actually got worse because now the elephants weren't there to give back to the land and to help cultivate the land. And so I think that's a that's a very bad idea. Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of different motivations. Some some can be speculated that this is control based, fear based. That when you when you're you know there's always been doomsday, uh, uh, catastrophe sort of prophets, and always the remedy for the sky falling is giving them power and control. Give me power and control, and I will save the world. And that's what's going on now. We have to give up our freedoms and give up are you know everything to the government so that they can save us all because the the world is going to combust and i don't think that that follows certainly not from uh an animal uh, an animal livestock uh model it's just it's it's net neutral just having animals on the land is exactly the same emissions and water usage as as livestock because most of the water being used is actually just rain on the ground that feeds the grass that they eat. So it's it's very strange that uh, they're pushing this. 
Um, obviously, there is a lot of money involved as well. The, the major food companies are all plant-based. They make billions, really trillions on selling their, their processed foods. They're also heavily invested and cross-invested with pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry is cross-invested with them. And so you have to wonder if there's some sort of ulterior motive that they know that sugar and all these other sorts of things. Now, first of all, they do know that sugar is addictive and sugar causes harm. They've known this since the 1950s and they've been trying to cover it up ever since. So I, I do think that there is that there is some, uh, well, not necessarily malice, but certainly greed involved that they're hiding the fact that they are hurting people. And then when you start seeing that, that companies such as Kellogg's and, and others are invested in pharmaceutical companies that make diabetes medication, then you have to start wondering if this isn't uh, if this isn't wholly to do with their profit margins. And I I remember I think it was Callie Means who was talking about was it him or some other whistleblower in the industry? Now maybe it wasn't him, um, but they said that that they were speaking to an executive from a pharmaceutical company and the executive said you know what my favorite drug is that we sell and you know this bright-eyed innocent person's thinking oh well something that you know help cures kids of cancer or something wonderful like that said no my favorite drugs are the ones that cause side effects that require other ones of the drugs that we sell uh to fix and that's what they care about they care about you know, just selling people drugs and mm -hmm. keeping them sick and, and making them more sick so that they can sell them more drugs. And I think that that is truly evil um, and, and deplorable. Um, the other one, which is sort of the underlying one, um, which I don't know how, mu how much detail you want to get into this, but there there is, a, you know, a faction that has been heavily influencing the nutritional industry and the medical industry and the guidelines and the WHO for over a hundred years. And that's the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I have nothing against Seventh-day Seventh Adventist church members. I know several of them personally, they're all wonderful people, but the doctrine of the church is one that is anti-meat. They think that it's, it's on a religious basis that meat is evil, meat is sinful, meat is a drug just like caffeine and cigarettes and, and alcohol. And that you should not eat it. They had a prophetess named Ellen G. White, who in the late 1800s said that she had a vision from God that said meat is evil uh, because it makes it, it rises, raises our sexual urges and desires. And this was during the temperance movement. And of course, that was bad. So it made you lustful, made you think about sex and lust is a sin and therefore meat is a sin and sinful. And so she was very much against it, against it and that became a, a major tenant of the Seventh-day Adventist church, which really gave them their identity and character as a new sect of Christianity. And her protege was a young boy named Harvey Kellogg, who grew up to be Dr. Kellogg, who became a very, very influential and famous doctor in America. And he and his brother founded Kellogg Cereals. And they founded it specifically to, they founded the entire processed food industry specifically to make products that would suppress sexual urges and desires. This is also where graham crackers came from. Sylvester Graham said this in the mid 1800s that 
you need to eat a bland plant-based diet in order to suppress sexual urges. And this was a paramount to your, to you know, the, the vitality of your soul to do this. And he was uh, sort of a, a mentor to Ellen G. White. And then she took it and ran with it. And so Kellogg's cereal became, uh, came out of that. There were a number, I think 36 or so cereal companies that were founded in and around where Dr. Kellogg's was based in his Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan. And then Ellen G. White decided to take that model because it was very successful and, and, but keep it as part of the church. So she actually emigrated to Australia in the early 1900s and founded Sanitarium Foods, which is still owned by the Seventh-day Adventist church and still uh, enjoys tax-free, tax-exempt status. And it was always to push this plant-based agenda, not even necessarily to make money, which is definitely an incentive now, I would say, but it was to push and propagate this idea that meat was bad and you should, and and we need to suppress sexual urges. That's why the Kellogg's cornflakes came out was to suppress sexual urges. They, and it it ended up uh, heavily influencing uh, nutrition and dietetics um, courses that really helped found the American uh, colleges of nutrition and dietetics. They heavily fund and support the Dietetics Association of Australia, Sanitarium Foods does, uh, as well as other food companies. And they wrote one of the original textbooks on nutritional science at a university level in, I believe, 1915. And that book is still in print and is still being taught in Ivy League nutrition courses in America, at least, and in its current um, edition. So, So people like Sally Norton, who got her degree in nutrition from uh, Cornell, she was taught out of the Seventh-day Adventist nutrition book. It was all plant-based, 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 plant-based. And I always wondered why people that went to top nutrition programs came out as raw food vegans, because you can't get B12 and you can't get a number of other things. And you talk about omega-3s, yeah, there are omega-3s in in and plant oils and flaxseed oils, but it's the wrong kind of omega-3s. We need DHA and EPA. The only omega-3 that exists in plants is ALA. And they also come with a lot of LA, linoleic acid, which is the omega-6s. And those are quite harmful. And in abundance, obviously you need linoleic acid, but past a certain level, it, it causes a lot of inflammation. It also blocks out the omega-3s that you do have, the DHA and EPA that you do have, and it doesn't get processed properly. So that can be a problem. And so I never really understood why a nutritionist would advocate for a diet that was lacking in nutrients. That didn't make sense to me. And so I just thought there was just some weird, weird thing. Uh, but now I know why. And that's because it's been, it's been pushed uh, from the top down for the last hundred years. They also founded the the uh, lifestyle medicine specialty. So this is something you can do a fellowship in as a medical doctor and in lifestyle medicine, which sounds great. The premise is, is fantastic. It's something that I practice, which is addressing diet and lifestyle to try to make people healthy so that they don't need all the medications, interventions, and surgeries in the first place. 100% all on board with that premise. But the diet that they that they promote as a result of that is a plant-based vegan diet. 
And so again, we get this, this religious involvement. And I don't know if they still think that this is suppressing sexual urges and that's still a good idea, or they've just been doing this for so long that, that uh, they're just used to it and they just have to keep going. I don't know, but they've had so much influence throughout the years. Um, was it the McGovern report? I think in the, in the late 1970s, it said saturated fat was a bad idea. Those guys were tied. The people that recommended made those recommendations were uh, either seventh day Adventist or had ties to seventh day Adventist church. Uh, Dr. Pritikin, Pritikin diet that, I mean, that was a household name where I came from because, I mean, I knew who Dr. Pritikin was, you know, it was one of my earliest memories was hearing about him. And well, as Dr. Pritikin, the Pritikin diet is just no fat. You want to stop heart disease. You just can't eat any fat. And he is, he is touted as the father of the plant-based diet because he made, you'd make meat so unpalatable by they, his recommendation was to take ground beef, low, low fat ground beef, boil the hell out of it, get all the fat to rise to the top, skim that off, dry it out, press it and squeeze out as much fat as you can, put it back on, on in the boiling water, boil it again, repeat the process. So you're getting all the fat out, but you're also getting all the nutrients out and all the flavor out. And I mean, you know, you're going to be vegan after that because you're just not going to want to eat that nonsense afterwards. So he was a professor at Loma Linda Medical Center, which is the Seventh-day Adventist Medical School. And I remember when I was applying to medical schools, I was living in California at the time. That's where Loma Linda is. And so I was looking around at the different medical schools. There were 10 at the time. And and I, I just was looking through and I said, oh, okay. You know, what's Loma Linda about? I haven't really heard of that. And it just said, in order to apply here, you have to be a member in good standing of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We will not accept anybody else. And so you have to have a letter from your deacon saying that, you know, you're you're actually a member of the church. And I was like, oh, that's kind of strange. And I just didn't really think about it. But they have Loma Linda. They also have hundreds of other institutions around the world. They run the peer review process for a lot of nutritional sciences and, and nutritional studies. And so, you know, you, you put anything out there about plant-based and you run it by Loma Linda, like you're, you're going to get through the peer-reviewed system. So it's, it is a flawed system. There are a lot of problems with the peer-reviewed system, but this has, has a specific bias. And they've been so established and around for so long that they are the system. They also have infiltrated multiple government bodies. Uh, they've infiltrated the WHO, the 2015 WHO declaration that processed meat was a carcinogen and that red meat was a probable carcinogen. The panel was made up of multiple vegans, vegetarians, and Seventh-day Adventist churches, church members, or, or all three. And they cherry-picked data and they included studies that were very weak, associative studies, that gave a small indication that processed meat or meat was had some small association with cancer and excluded out other high level studies that were much better and much uh, better designed and um, had better information that showed no association. And there was a member who wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist member who was on that panel and he just got completely overridden and he said that that was the most difficult professional experience of his entire life because he saw countless high-level studies that showed that meat had no, no connection with cancer be just thrown out. 
and then other very weak, poorly designed studies be included because they fit the narrative. And he said that that he challenged the other board members to uh, you know display their bias. Say, hey, look, you guys are vegans, vegetarians, and Seventh Day Adventists. You know, you need to declare your bias. You need to say that that that's what you are, and that's how you eat, and that's how you think. And they refused. And so this is this is pretty typical. You know, you have these people that are that are in charge. They're in place. They have been well placed and well established for literally a hundred years or more at this point. And you know, now they have. They, so there's the the religious ideological uh, drive for that, and there's also the financial drive now because they are they are the largest companies in the world, uh, Coca-Cola and Nestle and and Pepsi, Kellogg's. They're some of the largest corporations that have ever existed, and they're almost exclusively plant-based. They have they make a massive massive profit off of this, and they try to you know, put out studies, you know, Coca-Cola, this is something that Cali Means did say, is that Coca-Cola alone puts out nine or sorry, 11 times the amount of money and spending on nutritional studies than the NIH every year. And that's just Coca-Cola. So that's not sanitarium or the seven day Adventist or the, or Kellogg's or Nestle or Pepsi or Post or all these other ones. It just Coca-Cola is spending 11 times the amount of money on nutritional research at the NIH. So the vast majority of studies that go out there are industry funded and are going to push that narrative. So it's a rort. It's an absolute rort, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's um yeah, I mean, and so we're we were being conned. And what I think you need to get back back to, and something that I pointed out to a vegan doctor, well, vegan naturopath, is that is a well, but look at this study and look at this study and look at this study. It's like, look, there are studies that can go both ways, but it really doesn't matter because it doesn't matter how brilliant your theory is and it doesn't matter how smart you are. If it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. That's something famously said by um, Richard Feynman, the physicist. And it is so true. So you have all these studies that, that conflict or whatever. Well, we'll look at the, the, the evidence hierarchy. That's all bullshit. What does it predict? A theory is only as good as what it's able to predict. And if you're saying that meat is bad for me, which they are saying, and yet I go on a meat-only diet and my health improves by every subjective and objective marker, and that is the same for all of my patients, all of my family, and now millions of people around the world, entire civilizations with the Native Americans, in uh, North America and the Inuit and the Maasai and all these different populations, and then the net, um, everyone during the ice ages, all of these things. If that were true, then we would see the opposite of what's happening, but we're not. We are seeing people get better, people reversing massive illnesses. And these bur this burden of chronic disease is brand new, right? And so we're doing something new. We've always been eating meat. So that's not the cause. So it's whatever we've been doing the last century, what we've changed in our diet, that's what's causing it. And the only thing that's changed is this, this processed food revolution that started with the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's so sad and so mm. horrible for us as general everyday people who just want the best for our kids uh, and want the best for our families. 
There was a show over here, and I'm sure it's over there as well, called Alone, where 10 people Mm. get dropped into the wilderness and they've got nothing but 10 items that they choose to survive. And whether you're vegan, vegetarian or paleo or whatever the, the framework you want to call yourself, the one thing I noticed in that show was that the prized thing to get was a patty melon or a wallaby, something of red meat. That was the ultimate. And then how long you could make that meat last by drying it or smoking it, and an eel was close second. The the people that could only eat plants or did not catch anything were the ones that mentally dropped out. They just they couldn't survive. And that was a really big insight and eye-opener for me uh, to actually see the power of we were put back on this planet as survivors and thrivers as a tribe or whatever. I know we could talk to you for hours and I've been hanging off every word. I absolutely love following what you talk about. I'd just love it if we could summarize this. And just if you were talking to our beautiful Up For A Chat listener who is really um, questioning whether even if it's improving the amount of meat or increasing the amount of meat that they eat, ethically killed, grass-fed, sustainable meat and animals that have a great life, the circle of life and how we were born into this world as humans to live alongside with these animals. I love the Aboriginal and Indigenous cultures who give thanks to those animals. This is not about raping and pillaging the animals and hurting them. This is actually ethical farming I'm imagining that you're talking about. What would your final message be to us? And perhaps you could give us how we can follow you so that those of us interested in all the work that you do, particularly in a system that's probably radically against what you say, I would just love you to summarize everything in a message for our listener. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that since just to boil everything down is that that you will be healthier the closer you get to a biologically appropriate diet, the closer you get to what you are designed to eat, the closer your body will get to how it's designed to work. I I don't think that the idea that, that we are better off eating things that, you know, didn't exist 50 years ago makes any sense. You know, if you were, if you were biologically designed to eat something, then obviously that's optimal to eat that thing. And so, I, I think that the evidence shows very clearly that that is um, eating a high fat meat based diet or even even meat in exclusion. And people can look at people such as uh, Dr. Bill Schindler, who I mentioned, also Dr. Mickey Bendor, who did a large study talking about what humans have been eating, what the evidence is for us eating this way for the last two million years. We've been apex predators, hyper carnivores for that that period of time, at least. So I think just going in that direction, not being afraid of meat, certainly not being afraid of animal fat um, because it's good for you. It's very good for you. You're going to get nutrients for your body and and especially for your brain and especially for kids growing and developing. This is vitally important. And for people getting, getting older in life, this is so important to maintain your body and your brain and to keep you healthy uh, for longer. And then just sort of eliminating out some of the worst offenders if you can if you can go all the way just meat and water i think you'll do the best but you know just eating more meat eating more fat and eating less of the other things you're going to do so much better than 99 percent of people out there and so i think that's definitely something to to shoot for um and then just just remember that 
you can have a lot of different people with different, you know, with different drives and motivations putting out the literature. And so you can have studies that say anything, but if it doesn't line up with biological fact and the hard, hard laws of reality and what we are noticing and seeing, um, they're wrong. And so just remember that. And so, you know, when people say like, well, you're going to kill yourself, you're going to die, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Well, you can just, you can just point out that that isn't actually what's happening in reality. And that certainly there are studies that show that cholesterol and saturated fat are not a risk. And in fact, they're a benefit to heart disease and stroke and other sorts of things. But the reality is, is that people are getting better doing this and that people who traditionally ate this way did not get these diseases. And so just to remember that and remember that there are a lot of vested interests out there that profit greatly by us eating the wrong thing and getting very sick. Mm. And so just remember that. And yeah, and if people would like to, to see more, my YouTube channel is just my name, Anthony Chafee, MD. And I have an Instagram by the same by the same name. And I have a podcast. It's called The Plant Free MD, as, as you might have guessed. That's um <laughs> I made them all, but uh, yeah, that's where people can find me. Oh, Dr. Chafee, I am just um, blown away by your knowledge. I'm so glad you're in the camp of uh, understanding what is happening out there with, uh, like I believe, um, with nutrition. Um, I think our listeners will be questioning many things, as you made me question the first time I ever heard you speak. And I think that's a good thing is that we question because as Brené Brown says, and I've said this on this podcast before, questioning creates vulnerability and it also uh, causes you have to have courage to do it. But when you start to question and start to look at new ways of thinking and, you know, carnivores I know has been around for a while, but I think it's really getting uh, a momentum uh, going and people are finding results like um I saw recently Jordan Peterson's daughter talk about her life mm. before and after Carnival, and it is quite incredible, you know, to listen to that. So on behalf of Kim Morrison and I, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with us. We are indeed very humbled that you said yes to us, number one, um, and number two, you were so gracious with your information and your time. So thank you for being on Up for a Chat. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. And for our listeners' sake, if you do follow him on Instagram, just note these words. Hello, Christmas is all I can say. <laughs> this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.